My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to episode three of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. Today, we'll be covering the entire chapter of Luke chapter three. Little peek behind the curtain. This is the fourth time I've attempted to do this episode. I have had a harsh time with technology trying to get it to work correctly. No fun. So once again, I'm recording this in advance so that I can drop this on Monday because I'll be going to Chicago and I'll be out of town for Sunday when I typically record. So it's kind of hard to do that. I'd rather spend more time focusing on my family and seeing my dad, my uh, brother and sister-in-law and little baby of indeterminate gender that has yet to come out yet. So we can prove that I am right to be on team niece. We shall see. But we're going to move on today to Luke chapter three. We're going to be going through verses one through two. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate became governor of Judea and Herod became Tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas, Annas and Caiaphas, gosh, I cannot speak today. <laughs> the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, as you may have noted, number one, I have a stutter and a lisp, so it's very hard to say words I'm not very used to. Number two, uh, I made some of his pronunciation tough, you know, because that's what you do sometimes. And that's okay. It just gets us through it. You see a lot of preachers all the time. They'll have very different interpretations of how to say a certain word. You just move on with your life just so you can say the word. But what these two verses set up, not only, again, showing the historicity, historicity of Luke that I love so much, but to help place this for a, an audience at this time to know this is exactly when these events occurred. They could have gone through Roman public records and saying, okay, well, Pontius was, you know, governor here, you know, Tiberius Caesar was reigning here. And then we see, this is not Herod the Great that is mentioned here in this passage. This is actually his son, Herod Antipater, along with Herod's other son, Philip, and some of the other relatives that Herod had, who are now in control of various parts of Judea, instead of being one united kingdom like it was under Herod, he kind of pulled like that eventually what Charlemagne would do, and that he gave things off to various sons and relatives so that they could have a piece of the pie rather than keeping it one whole pie. But as well, we also see here Annas and Caiaphas, who are both the high priest. They're both called the high priest, but officially Caiaphas is the high priest. Now, there's a reason for this in that Annas at some point in time was deposed from being the high priest. We're not exactly sure why. We don't know if he ticked someone off in Roman authority or maybe even his own people. But either way, tradition kind of says it was Romans, but we don't have that as written proof. So who knows? But his son-in-law, Caiaphas, would take command of the high priesthood. But even with that, Annas still has a huge sway over the entire group of Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and so on and so forth, so that his word is still law if he says something. So even though Caiaphas is in charge, he's not as in charge as he probably would like to be. 
And moving on from there, we have John the Baptist bursting onto the scene. And he brings this radical message of repentance and baptism. We're about to get into in these next couple of verses. This man is your atypical preacher of the era. He is coming from a priestly family, but he's not teaching at the synagogue. He's in the wilderness, out there making sure people know their need for a savior, their need to turn away from their sins. Utterly fascinating. So we go through verses three through nine. Moving on. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that therefore it does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We have a lot of things to unpack just in these verses alone. And the first obviously being, where does baptism come from? Now you study your Old Testament you're not seeing this used on a grand scale. I mean, there's even doubts placed on like the one verse, uh, well, two verses I'm going to be mentioning in a bit on whether that actually counts as a baptism in and of itself because it's more of a ritual cleansing. So where does John get this idea from? Well, as far as we know, this is an invention God gives John for his ministry to begin, uh, excuse me, to go through. Uh, although there are some who believe these passages in that cannot speak today. <laughs> so just laugh at my misery there. Uh, Leviticus, they kind of foreshadow this. So in Leviticus 16, verses 23 through 24, and I'm going to be using the Living Bible for this one. Then Aaron shall go into the tabernacle again and take off the linen garments he wore when he went behind the veil and leave them there in the tabernacle. Then he shall bathe in a sacred place, put on his clothes again, and go out and sacrifice his own burnt offering for the people making atonement for himself and for them. Now, the Hebrew word that is used to describe this water is called the mikvah, which basically just means a collection of water. Now, this is one of the verses people will say, well, that baptism existed before, but this is kind of done like whenever Aaron has to do this, whenever the high priest has to do this. So it's not a one-time deal. So there's a lot of speculation that's probably not the same. It all depends on who you're asking. But as far as the history of baptism existing across the world, it is not invented at this moment in time. There are plenty of ancient civilizations, from Egypt to Sumerians to the Americas and even India, that have a history of ceremonial cleansing by going into the waters then coming back out. Now, why is that? Well, it's just a logical conclusion to make. I mean, we know how water works. People know that used correctly, water can cleanse. So the symbolism has been there from the moment that we could even understand that as a concept. So while it's not a new idea, 
the way John was performing his baptisms was new. And what it represents to us as a final symbolic act of the washing away of our sins permanently by Jesus. So again, these ritual cleansings from across the world, you didn't do it just a one time and you're done like we do. Like you had to do it over and over again. This is unique. It is a one and done as a symbolic moment of what Jesus has already done. Something else we should note. It is extremely weird that for the Jewish people to undergo baptism at this time, as it was primarily used before this moment in time, as a way for Gentile converts to Judaism to renounce their past life. They would do the exact same thing. The same symbolism applies. So they're like, oh, well, I used to be a godless heathen, and now I'm going into these waters, and now I believe in the Jewish faith, and I'm part of the community. That's the way they use it. And we use it somewhat similarly, but it's for everyone, a Jew, Gentile alike. And John is forcing them to do this, and it's highly offensive. But to those who actually performed it, it shows their submission and humility because they're going to be made fun of by the people around them for doing something that they see as beneath them. Now, let's also note John's fiery speech is exactly what these people need to hear. And you're not going to hear a lot of people talking about that. We don't like our fiery preachers. We don't want the hellfire and brimstone. And to a certain extent, I agree. But sometimes it needs to be said. And John holds no punches in this fight. He goes for the jugular. So the, even calling them a brood of vipers, which is a colloquialism that was used in Judea, it's often used to signify someone being in league with the serpent of Genesis due to their incredibly sinful natures. So by calling them this, he is calling them just as bad as the serpent that introduced sin into the world by tempting Adam and Eve, who eventually made their own decision to get into that sin. That's no small like accusation. <laughs> that can get yourself killed. You say it to the wrong person. And eventually we'll see John's outspoken nature does get him killed. But sometimes we forget that the call to repentance needs to remind people of their need for a savior. But there still needs to be a bit of nuance there. John recognized his audience, and he called them out appropriately. Sometimes, you and I, we take things too far and make people believe that they're beyond redemption with our words to the point where we've accomplished nothing except to distance them further. This is why I am in favor of calling people out for sins. But, number one, I need to make sure I have my act together. And number two, I need to recognize my audience. If I'm talking to someone who is wrestling with their sin and sees themselves as a lesser person and has no value in themselves, and I say, yep, you are worthless and you're a sinner, that's probably not the best way to get them involved with God and have them understand their need for Savior. It's like, look, you can say, yes, we've all fallen short. But the good news is that God has come here to save us all from ourselves. Know your audience before you get the hellfire and brimstone out. Because guess what? Those need to be said at the right time. I cannot open every 
if I opened up every single one of these chapters, say, like, oh, you're all going to hell. <laughs> that, that's not very effective. In fact, uh, I'd expect a lot of people to stop listening. You know why? Because that's just me. I mean, because guess what? Not every single person listening is in danger of that happening because they've given their lives to Christ. Know your audience. Be better. We'll also note here that the Jewish people saw themselves as worthy of salvation simply owing to the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham, sons of Abraham, the father of all Israel. This salvation by association principle does not exist and never will. Having a pastor as a relative doesn't grandfather you or me into salvation. Simply being near religious people doesn't somehow transfer holiness and sanctification to us either. We need a personal relationship with Jesus that cannot be bought, cannot be gifted by anyone else other than him. Don't get lost by saying, well, my dad was a Christian, therefore I am. doesn't pass genetically. Unfortunately, it may make things a lot easier along the way, but that's not how God works. We all need to have that moment of coming to Jesus and repenting of our sins. Let us also remember that if such a thing were true about merely being related to Abraham being necessary for salvation, most of us wouldn't qualify for that, you know, since most of us are Gentiles. Also, it would mean that evil men and women like Korah, Jeroboam I, Ahab, Jezebel, Jehoram, and Herod the Great would have qualified to be in heaven despite never once seeking repentance or desiring it. Does that sound like an afterlife you and I want to be in? Where it's like, how's it going, Ahab? Remember all those people you murdered? Yeah, it's real nice. Oh, you never sought repentance? Well, uh, you had to get out of hell free card by being Jewish? Oh, okay. Well, I had to actually, you know, repent for mine. No, that's not how God works. Also go to see the imagery that John uses here is that God has an axe ready to chop down any bad fruit and bad root from the trees. This is a just and righteous thing to do, as having even one bad fruit or root is enough to harm the entire tree, and any gardener worth their salt will tell you the same. God cannot abide sin and imperfection in his holy presence. That is why Jesus had to come to die to remove everything that is offensive and evil to him from ourselves so that Jesus Christ's sacrifice could cover it and therefore you and I can be washed in that blood of the Lamb. We like to use that phrase all the time. So that when our time is up and we meet with him, he will recognize the fact that that is no longer there. If that does not happen, we're bad fruit. We're bad root then he has the right, as the prime gardener, to remove that from his presence. We'll move on from there to verses 10 through 22. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. 
as the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this to, all, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. A lot just happened there. Let's start first with the people that John was talking to. They ask, what shall we do? So once again, John, knowing his audience, goes one by one by one. And he speaks to the people who are rich, who have more than others. And he says, what shall we do? He says, get rid of worldly possessions as a status symbol and care for your fellow man. He's not saying you have to give up both cloaks or excuse me, both tunics. Which is also a cloak. <laughs> He's not saying you have to give up all your money. That's something I've seen a lot of people get really bad. Uh, I know a lot of people out there really love John Piper. I think he's a good guy. I'm just really burnt out by him, by his Don't Waste Your Life book. Because I'm not sure he ever explicitly said this in the book. It's been like 10 years since I've read it. But there was one moment in there where it just felt like, if you have money at all and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you're evil. (laughs) And I'm fairly certain he never once said those words, but you got a sense from the whole book. It's like, wealth, oh, wealth just means you're with Satan. It's like, no, that's not how this works. God can bless people with wealth, but at that same time, that rich person has been given that wealth to use for the benefit of others. It is not for hoarding. It is not for just ourselves. God can bless people with riches. I am not someone who is rich, so this is not talking about me in that regard, but there are still ways I can use my time and money to help out people that if I just chose to spend it on myself and only think of myself, I'm just as bad as someone who is hoarding all the wealth in the world and gives nothing in return because I'm not using what God has gifted me for his purposes. Same thing going to the tax collectors. So they deal this honestly. It's what they do because of the way it worked back in the day. It's like, Rome would say, okay, this guy owes us this, and we're going to pay you very little. So what tax collectors would do is they would go to these people and say, Rome says this, I say this, pay this much, I'm going to take a little off the top, and then come back and do it later on. So Rome gets paid, and I get paid a lot more than I would have. So they're just trying, in their own minds, they've justified it, say, well, I, I need a living wage too. But also note what John does not say here. He doesn't say, stop being tax collectors. He says, no, stop ripping ripping people off. And I know there's a lot of Christians out there who don't believe in taxation at all. And I say this as someone who despises the income tax. Yet it is still part of the law of the land. Nothing would make me happier than for it to be repealed. Because that way, 
I could have more money and I could do more with that money. But that's not the reality I live in. And the fact is, if used correctly, that money I'm sending to the government is going to be used for things like safety, is going to be used to increase the budget of the military or NASA or to help you know potholes around here or what have you. If used correctly, which is a big if. I know I'm, I'm reaching. But still, a representative of God himself is telling his people to aid the government of the land they're in so that certain services can get paid for. We're going to see this later on when Jesus talks about taxation with Rome. God never says, you do not have to pay your taxes. And I know we all hate hearing that. But the fact of the matter is, any good government, even a corrupt government, needs taxes so that things can get done. I'm getting over that. Economics is one of those things I really hate talking about. Next up, we see the soldiers. They are told to be honest, but also to treat people under them with care. This is radical because soldiers can pretty much do whatever they want. They can beat you up. They can seize your house and possessions. They can say, oh, these are treasonous people. So what John is telling them is that, no, your job is to protect. Your job is to safeguard the people. Don't abuse your position of power. And I know this is a really huge issue even now. Just with the police alone or the the, the army, the armed forces, and how we carry ourselves just in America. I mean, the entire world is an issue. It's like, how dare these people abuse their authority? And I'm not saying every single one. Like, a lot of people I know, unfortunately, just had this idea of, well, if one does it, they all do it. That's not how it works. But the fact of the matter is that there are people who are doing it, and that is unacceptable. does not matter if there's only one in the department. doesn't matter if it's only two. It should never happen for any member of what is supposed to be a force for good, causing destruction and death instead. So I know I just lost, I pleased exactly no one with what I said there. I've lost my liberals, I've lost my conservatives. It's okay. I'm okay with losing that. If that's what offended you and brought you out of here, then, well, I can only say good luck. Next up, we have this moment with John. He is popular. People are rushing to see him. But despite all the attention that John receives, he doesn't forget the reason for his existence, which is to declare the coming of Jesus Christ, which no doubt is a a concept he learned from his very humble and wonderful mother who showed the exact same humbleness when talking to Mary, despite both of them being in a position where they were doing great things for God. Yet, despite all of the good words that John preaches, he was still held in low esteem by those in power because he called them out on their unrighteousness, which ends up later on getting him in prison and murdered. We are called to do the same. It doesn't matter if that person is a Democrat, a Republican, unaffiliated, 
the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, or what have you. If corruption exists around us and we are living righteously, remember that part. We are told to call out sin no matter the cost. Everyone likes to rag on Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. It's like, oh, you have all this money. Think of all the good you can do. And you're absolutely right to say something like that. But a lot of these people calling him out, calling them both out, what are they doing with their money and time? You'll see a lot of, uh, please term is virtue signaling now. Of, well, I'm calling you out so that you, you don't look at me and see all the things that I'm not doing or the things that I am doing that are wrong. But as long as I'm calling you out, I'm good. And don't get me wrong. We're talking about money earlier, people who are rich and not doing anything with it. Those two, uh, just alone, I mean, there are plenty of billionaires out there, but they're two of the more obvious ones I can speak on, should be doing more with that money. And I'll give you an example from earlier in American history, and not a perfect man in his own regard either, but Rockefeller, once again, not a perfect man, did not treat his employees as well as he should have. But he still invested in his community around him, creating things devoted to the arts. And uh, if I remember correctly, I can't remember which one, it may be Rockefeller again, uh, started raising awareness of, you know, certain uh, was hookworms or flatworms or something like that, especially in the South, where that was causing a huge decline in uh, IQ levels and uh, life expectations that he was able to almost eradicate to a certain extent using his money. And once again, I think I'm maybe confusing him for someone else. It's been a while since I've researched this, so I apologize for this example. I just thought of it spur of the moment. But once again, he's not perfect either. He uses money selfishly. So you call out the good and you call out the evil. It does not matter who this person is. I will let you know, free of charge. I have not liked a president since George Bush Jr. That doesn't mean that George Bush Jr. was ever free of any accusations of any kind and did not need to be called out because there are many things he did that needed to be called out. People, especially on the right side of the argument, would like to brace up Ronald Reagan as someone who is a paragon of Republican values. Well, that very same man consulted astrologers while he was president of the United States. Which, by the way, would have gotten you killed if you were living back in Israel. He also did not respond to the AIDS crisis as swiftly as he should have. His handling of that with the LGBT community was awful as well. But at the same time, this is a man who helped strengthen a military, who helped defend Granada from an invasion, who helped also to uh, bring the close of the, the Cold War in a time where people thought nukes were about to go off at any second. And it's a huge part of what he did to help bring that to a, a peace that no one ever thought was possible. He was not a perfect man. There has never been a perfect man other than Jesus. So we call them out when they do wrong. We also call out when they do right. People really want to just say, oh, well, he did this, therefore I can cancel that person, and then I never have to think about them again. 
Like, no, that's not how it works. And we don't want that to work for ourselves. So why should we do that to someone else? Because we know all the bad things we've done. It's astounding to me that we live in a society like that right now. It really irks me to that extent. It's like, look, there is way more nuance than people want to admit exists out there in the world. So I said it before, I'll say it again. Call out the good, call out the evil. So back to our text. The fact that Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife is explicitly called out as uh, against the law in Leviticus 18.16. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible for this. You are not to have sexual intercourse with your brother's wife. She is your brother's family. Further, also in Leviticus 20.21, this is the Good News Translation, if a man takes his brother's wife, they will die childless. He has done a ritually unclean thing and has disgraced his brother. Now, wasn't there a group of people around who, you know, memorized the entire Bible, especially the Torah? Uh, excuse me, especially the Pentateuch. You might call these people Pharisees. Now, did a single one of these people call out Herod for what he did? Now, we have no textual belief for this, but I'm going to say no, because it's not explicitly said. And you know why? Because they stayed in power and they didn't get their heads chopped off. So what John is doing is what they should have been doing. You didn't see Annas doing it. You didn't see Caiaphas doing it. Maybe they talked about Herod behind his back. But he didn't do it in a public forum, calling out the king, which, you know, Nathan did. If you'll go all the way back to 2 Samuel, Nathan the prophet did it for David and Bathsheba. And he didn't lose his head at that one point in time. But instead, by calling out the king, got David back on the path of righteousness. Now, Herod being Herod, that probably wouldn't have happened. But that doesn't matter. The end result doesn't matter. The point is, we are being faithful. So let's move on to Luke's. Uh, talking of Jesus' baptism. And we kind of gloss this over a little bit. Uh, you'll see in other Gospels of uh, the furthering of what happens in this moment. Uh, John talking about how he's not worthy to do it. He, he brings it up earlier, but not to him talking to Jesus in Luke. But we still see Jesus undergoes baptism. But why does Jesus need to do this? For his sins? Uh, the perfect man? No. But there are other reasons why he did what he did. Now, he's just a couple. There are more than this. But one of the main ones is to help identify with us by going through the process so that we would be encouraged to do the same when our call to repentance comes. We are called to be baptized when we come to faith. Now, obviously, I come from a Baptist tradition, and that means full immersion. There are other denominations out there. In fact, most don't practice that. That they might do a sprinkling, or they might do a half submersion, or what have you. Do I think those are illegitimate? No. It's a symbolic act. The whole point is where your heart is at. If your heart has been turning away from your sins, you want to focus on God, you need to be baptized. And once again, I prefer full immersion, full immersion because the symbolism of that moment seems a lot more appropriate. And that you are going underwater completely, you come out of the water a brand new man or woman. But that does not mean if you were never baptized, you're not a Christian. Look to the thief on the cross that Jesus says will be in heaven with him that day. He wasn't baptized. 
You didn't see a preacher go bring him down. Hold on a second, Roman soldiers. Let me let me baptize this man. Like, no, that's not how it works. But then Jesus says he's going to be in heaven with him. Baptism is a symbolic action, but we are still called to do it. Second, this was done to show submission to John as one called out by God, God to do this service for mankind. Jesus is submitting to John's authority despite being the person who made John. How does that make you feel? Showing God's love for humanity by allowing a human being to baptize Jesus Christ is a stunning display of affection for us. Jesus didn't need John to be baptized. He probably could have done it himself. I don't know how that works, but you know what? He could have made it work. But he did it this way anyway to show us how important we are to him. Likewise, Jesus does this further in submission to God because God called him to do it. And because there is no friction between the members of the Trinity, Jesus did as he was told, which God shows his appreciation and love for by opening up the heavens and by bringing the Holy Spirit to him as a further sign of their unity. So that's it for that section. We're going to move on to the final parts of Luke, where we go through the lovely genealogy section, where I'm going to get every name correct the first time. (laughs) I believe I said 22, I mean uh, 23 through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Moth, the son of Mattathias, the son of Samine, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Amaldim, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Minna, the son of Mathatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, page turn, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Saru, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphazak, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Kainan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Okay, let me take a breath. Well, that was the entire course of human history, so thank you for coming to that from that point in time. Wow, I'm surprised I got through that in one piece. So, there's one other genealogy in Scripture for Jesus Christ, and that is in the Gospel of Matthew. To those of you reading that as well, you may notice this does not one-to-one align with that. Now, why is that? There are several things brought up. Matthew uses Joseph's genealogy. We are fairly certain about that. To show to the Jewish people who is his primary audience that Jesus is legitimate to become king of the Jews through 
David, through Solomon, so on and so forth. Luke, on the other hand, is going to bring us the genealogy of Jesus from the beginning of the world to show that he is king of all men and women. So, all that to say, there are different motivations for why we have what we have. Matthew wants to show Jesus' legitimacy to the Jews by being a son of Abraham and David. Luke wanted to show Jesus' legitimacy to the Gentiles by being a son of Adam and therefore kin to the whole entire world. Matthew showed Jesus' legal right to be king by his earthly father's ancestry. uh, Excuse me, Luke showed Jesus' actual ancestry through Mary's side of the family while still naming his earthly father Joseph. So it is been tradition for a long time. Matthew is Joseph's lineage, his legal lineage, and Mary is his biological, um, excuse me, ancestry. Lineage was where I was looking for there. <laughs> that we see in Luke. There is something so fascinating about genealogies that I, I am fascinated by, but I am so glad that I don't have to be the one to research my family history my mother has done an amazing job of compiling as far back as records show of where our family came from, who these people were. And that way we know where we came from in the past. That's how I know about my English, Scotch, Irish, German, and Swiss heritage with you know, so, several other rumored people and uh, races being there. We're not entirely sure. And nationalities. But she has put a lot of time and effort into doing this so that we don't, number one. (laughs) I think she would be very disappointed by the results if we uh, did this. But it just shows, like I said, I'm very appreciative of it. This is done, this was a very important thing to the Jewish people as well. Way more important than it is for us. Because this was a way of saying to them, they kept these records very seriously. You come from here. That way we are related this way, so I am supposed to honor you because of this past relation. We don't really have that kind of thing in the world right now, but they take it very seriously, and that's why we have the records that we do have. So be very grateful that there were a lot of people out there who were willing to do this. Now, originally, I was going to go through a lot of the people in Jesus's genealogy and say they did explicitly this, but there was something that popped up along the way I mentioned earlier in this episode that kind of threw me off my tracks. So I'm going to focus on that a little more than what I was planning to do. And if there's time allowing, I'll, I'll get back into the others as well. But let's start first with Joseph. Joseph comes is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yosef. This is the name that means God will add. And of course, it comes from the Joseph of Genesis, who provided for his family despite their evil towards him. Let me see, we talked about Joseph Joseph before. This is a man who has shown us humility, has shown us love, and how he cared for a child that was not his, and a child that could never biologically be his, but that legally he made and that he loved. Without Joseph doing his job, Jesus's life would have been different. Jesus would have still been Jesus, but he wouldn't have had a stable home. Imagine if Joseph has, had fled from that relationship, leaving Mary all alone. How And they were already poor to begin with. How Things 
would have been way worse. But instead, he stepped up to the plate and fathered the son and his other children to show his compassion, to show his love for his family. Now, next up on our docket, we have all the people from Heli to Ressa. These are Jesus's ancestors from the era of the Roman occupation, because Luke goes in reverse order, all the way back to a little after the return from the exile. And we know next to nothing about these people. It's unfortunate. There's a... It's that old belief that people have is that your name is only truly dead if people stop speaking it. And for a lot of history, that's very true. There, the vast majority of history, there are people whose names we're never going to know while we're still alive on this earth because there are no archaeological records of them. There is no one speaking about, you know, what's his face from, you know, the from Thailand in 5000 B.C., because they just don't exist. So we should be very grateful that we have what history we do. And I say this in light of, we don't know who these people are, but we do know that they, for the most part, it seems, maintained the faith, watched over their children, taught them the law, instructed them wisely to the point where Joseph and Mary, when it's their time to be born, are taught in that same way, and they are able to act correctly, act justly, because of the people who came before them. And we should do the very same with our own family. Next up, we get to the part where I spent an hour of research on something that I was originally going to talk about for a minute. <laughs> this is from Zerubbabel all the way to Nathan, son of David. These are Jesus' ancestors around and after the exile, all the way to Nathan, the son of David, and Bathsheba. There is something that I had never once heard before. I have read through this book over 10 times. I've read through the Bible over 10 times. And not once until I was looking through commentaries while preparing my message for this, have I come across this before? And that is the curse of Jeconiah. Christian, who the heck is Jeconiah? You did not mention his name in the entire genealogy you just read out. Well, yes, you're right. That's because Jeconiah is in the genealogy we get from Matthew. But there is a chance he could be related in some form to the one in Luke, and I'll get to that in a moment. So, all that to say, there is a seeming contradiction that needs to be addressed due to a prophecy that we find in Jeremiah. Specifically, Jeremiah 22, 28 through 30. Now, Jeconiah is also known as Kaniah and Jehoiakim. So, you're going to see three different names. Once again, that's one of the things that's kind of happened in Hebrew culture. You get more than one name sometimes. Verse 28. Is this man, Jehoiakim, a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. So, Jeconiah was one of the final kings of Judah. 
before the exile. And we see in Joseph's genealogy, Joseph is descended from him legally and, and ancestrally. This would mean that even though he's adopted, or even if we'll get to Zerubbabel in a moment because he might be tied to Jeconiah, Mary would still have, through biological processes, been descended from someone descended from him, which would mean that Jesus has no right to be king because God pronounced a curse on anyone descended from Jeconiah to no longer be ruler of Israel and Judah and the people. So, this, like I said, would disqualify him. Zerubbabel is mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. He is a governor of Judea, excuse me, of Jerusalem that came after the exile. Uh, Cyrus appointed him to be governor there so that he would be able to lead the Jewish people. They eventually rebuilt the temple together and uh, recreated their society after Cyrus graciously allowed them to come back after the exile. Zerubbabel is the grandson of Jeconiah. So even if we're not talking about Jesus' genealogy, we still need to talk about him because he is a blood relative, we know for sure, of Jeconiah, and he is now in a leadership position. However, we may have two Zerubbabels to deal with here. We see Zerubbabel, uh, son of Shealtiel, in both genealogies, but they have different fathers. So most people take this to mean that these are two separate entities. Two separate Shatiel and Zerubbabel uh, father-sons in different genealogies. That is definitely something that's possible. I mean, just look through that list, how many names repeated? Not only in that list, but also throughout the Bible itself. Well, people are going to name you after someone who did something good, like Joseph himself, named after biblical Joseph. We have a Levi in there. We have a Judah in there, the founder of the tribe of Judah. It's going to happen. And In fact, there's more than one Joseph in that line. There's even a Joshua, which would be Yeshua, which would be Jesus in that line. But this Zerubbabel, if we look at this correctly, this is not the same one who is found in Joseph's genealogy. Remember again, Joseph's line is Jesus's legal ancestral line until we get back to David. Luke's genealogy is his actual biological ancestral side, which means he is not descended from the Zerubbabel who governed Jerusalem, as his genealogy is far different from the one we find in Matthew. So back to Zerubbabel himself. Remember that phrase that was used in Jeremiah. In his lifetime. Which means that none of Jeconiah's offspring in his lifetime would be rulers of Israel. Now, there's some wordplay there that may or may not affect that. It may mean at the end of the day the curse was for all time. Also remember that this is all, as far as Jesus is concerned, rendered moot by the fact that Mary's side of the family is descended from Nathan, son of David, and not Solomon, son of David, which still fulfills the son of David prof, uh, promise given by God while avoiding the curse against Jeconiah. Now, once again, as far as Zerubbabel is concerned, in Haggai, I'm not going to make you go there, 
there are some verses where he is shown as someone worthy of leadership, perhaps showing that God has reversed his curse. Because remember, Jeconiah was his grandfather. And in the verse in Jeremiah, it says, he shall have an offspring lead Israel or Judah and the people of the Jewish population. But Zerubbabel does it anyway. So did God change his mind? Is God lying? Is God, is this why this is a contradiction and the entire story unravels from there? If there's one contradiction in the Bible, it all falls flat. And that would be true if this was a contradiction. So if we go to Haggai, we see that God has potentially removed this curse. But can God himself remove a curse he himself placed? Well, <laughs> I have good news for you. And it's called the good news, people, for a reason. Because that's exactly what God did to our curse when Jesus died on the cross. He reversed that through Jesus' sacrifice. The biggest curse in all of humanity is that we are going to die and be separated from God eternally in hell. But God, being just and being love, reverses that curse through Jesus' sacrifice. So can God reverse a curse he himself makes? Absolutely. So if this is how it worked for Zerubbabel, that means there's no contradiction. So all that to say, there is no contradiction, but it is still something worthy of studying, especially when we can't ignore someone when they claim something within Scripture is a contradiction. In fact, when I was doing my research for this, I actually called my old pastor and asked him if he had never heard it, and he eventually had the same reaction I had, which is, the what? <laughs> I never heard this preached before. And I don't think it was from a place of, oh, I don't want people thinking about that. I I think it was from a place of people just didn't know that. I mean, because you got to know your Bible really well. And obviously I didn't know it as well as I thought I did. But I do think that there are people out there who refuse to look at things like this because it makes them think. And it makes them think and doubt. And we have a huge culture in modern Christianity that says doubt is a terrible thing. Always. There's no room for doubt ever. If you doubt, you're bad. That's not how it works. Doubt can be a good thing used correctly. If you're just doubting for the sake of doubting and you don't want to be part of Christianity and that's your excuse, that's sin. If you use doubt to fuel investigation, to fuel your further understanding of who God is and what he desires from us, doubt can be good. Some of the biggest periods of growth in my life have come as a result of doubt. If I had read those things, that commentary, and said, well, oh no, that makes me feel kind of bad, and I, I just don't know if I can look into it because it may unravel everything and say that scripture is a lie, then I'm the one to blame, not the person who brought it up. Because I'm refusing to, refusing to see what could have been true simply because it doesn't fit in my view of how things work. But because I poured my time and effort into this to where I can bring this all to you, now I can say that my faith is even stronger than it was before because I now know the answer to how to answer this. And I know there's some of you out there who say, you didn't talk about this, you didn't talk about this, and you're right, because I didn't want to focus solely on this for 25 minutes. In fact, it's winning on longer than I thought it would. <laughs> so if you have something else you want to add to that, please feel free to reach us out. Uh, reach out to us at let the nothing move you podcast dot, excuse me at gmail.com. I'd really like to discuss this more. So I'm going on a lot longer than I thought I would. I should have known better, me being me. 
So we'll get back to the genealogy. We go from David to Abraham. What this essentially is for is like what Matthew does. It shows Jesus's right to rule his people through the promises made to David by God. And it then furthers this by showing us the line all the way to Abraham to show Jesus's connection to the beginnings of the Jews as a people. Christ came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. That is the point Matthew is making, the, to the Jews part. Luke is making the point first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, even though Matthew does bring it up as well. And that's why we see from Terah all the way to Adam, Luke is showing us Jesus's connection to the entirety of humanity, solidifying his relationship to us as humans and not a specific people group as he came to save all of humanity. There's not one people group better than the other. There never will be, never has been. Even when the Jewish people were set apart, it could have been anyone. We've said it before. So that is the end of Luke chapter 3, and I have talked for almost an hour on this. (laughs) But I did, like I said, I wanted to bring up that part about Jeconiah because I don't want to avoid difficult conversations all the time. We'll get to the Trinity eventually, believe me. <laughs> if there's ever something out there and you question, what does this mean? Reach out to your pastors. Reach out to uh, someone you know is really gifted with scripture. Like you can even reach out to me. Uh, once again, that email. Like I reached out to my pastor and he said, man, I'm going to have to do some research. That's fun. And like, once again, he didn't shy away from it. He said, I've never thought of this this way. I'm glad someone else pointed it out to me. Otherwise, I never would have known. That's good. We are all still learning, no matter how far apart in this journey we are from when we started. So once again, if there's something out there you're wrestling with that you just don't understand, like, how can this be true? Ask for help, because if you just do it alone, you may find the wrong answer. And even sometimes when you go to the right people, they may give the wrong answer. This can be the wrong answer. Just trust that God is going to give it to you. That's all I have to say about that. So guys, thank you once again for listening as long as you have. I really appreciate it. Please, when you feel the need, just leave a five-star review on whatever podcasting platform you're listening to this on. It'll definitely help us with the ratings, with being able to access more people. Uh, Contact us at letnothingmoveyoupodcast.gmail.com. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.